to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalists. I'm Adam White. In the last few episodes, we've had conversations about religion and education in America. Last time it was Ryan Anderson on religion and American government. For that, a conversation with Nicole Neely of Speech First and Stuart Taylor of Princetonians for Free Speech on the state of education in America. We'll continue those themes today with one of my favorite educators of all and my colleague at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Helen Alvarez is a professor of law at the Scalia Law School, where she teaches family law, law and religion, and property law. She publishes on matters concerning marriage, parenting, non-marital households, and the First Amendment religion clauses. And in a year, really a time in which so many questions are being asked about religion in public life, religion in education, religion in government, there's really nobody I'd rather have on this podcast to discuss these things. So, Helen, welcome. Thanks so much, Adam. It's fun to be here. It's nice to see you outside of the usual the George Mason meeting. As I said, Helen, in preparing for this conversation, I really think of it in terms of three basic questions. I hope we get a chance to get to all of them. The first is thinking about religion and government. The second is thinking about religion and political discourse. And third, thinking about religion in American education. And what I suppose that means for the other institutions of government. So, Helen, let's just start with, with the, the first one, religion and government. We've seen a few cases in the Supreme Court recently on religion, the First Amendment, and COVID-19 regulation. But, of course, we're seeing a collision of religious values and, and other public values in contexts ranging from health law to, to so many other things. How would you describe the, the current state of the relationship between religion and government? Well, I mean, really current, current today, under the current administration, at the federal level, I would say there's not a very close relationship. I think it's really, really interesting that during the course of now President Biden's political campaign, nobody even asked the question in a serious manner, gee, I wonder if his religion will affect his governing, right? So we have the second Catholic president. And nobody really asks the question because nobody believes that he sees a relationship. <laughs> Whereas that was sort of an outstanding question because of the known hierarchical status of the Catholic Church, the position of the Pope. It's well known through looking at the career of a candidate Biden that he's a political person who has private religious beliefs. In his own biography, he taught his autobiography, he talks about being a cultural Catholic, but not a theological one. He makes that distinction. So the, the idea that he would have some special relationship with his own faith or with any faith that would really have an influence on what the government is doing, just it's a non-starter. It's not a, it's so interesting. I mean, Hillary Clinton, for instance, did not have the conversation either during her campaign. Prior to that, Lieberman, Romney, et cetera. Even the Bushes did it, you know? That's one thing. The other is, you know, I'm on the board of Catholic Relief Services, which does a lot of lobbying. I do several things for the Vatican, at the Organization for American States, in safeguarding at the UN. You're just not seeing an interaction between either, you know, the Holy See and, and the church, between churches in the United States. And the government, sure, they have a liaison. In fact, it's the same woman who did the, the liaising often for the Obama administration. And they provide sort of, you know, 
a place for people to come and talk to someone in the administration. But it's more an allowing people to vent. (laughs) What, What really happens, I think, is when different religious groups are happy for a particular political outcome, the current federal administration will say, hey, thanks for supporting our views on refugee caps or health care or something. But the idea that religion has any seat at the table or is interacting to provide wisdom in the current system, I just don't think that that's happening. Or if it is, it's to no effect. It's to allow them an outlet, but, but not an influence. And that's probably different in the states, right? Different states, you have different religious personalities interacting with the government. But, you know, here in Washington, I just don't think that's a factor right now. It's interesting. And when you say right now, just to be specific, do you mean in the, in the current administration, the Biden administration, or is this something that preceded it, the Trump and, and Obama administration? So I think it's right now in the current Biden administration, the Trump administration. And, I, you know, I'm not judging their motives, political or religious in doing so, but there was an awful lot of dialogue between religious groups. Jewish, various Christian denominations, Mormon, that I was aware of that had perspectives. And we can get to this when we talk about, you know, the relationship between religion and the common good, but but had insights and perspectives that they weren't asking the government to instantiate, you know, qua religion, but were saying, hey, we've got some wisdom that we might be able to offer you. I'll give you a perfect example. I was real active with the U.S. bishops, but in coordination with evangelical, Muslim, and Jewish groups in the 1990s, when welfare reform was being proposed. And what we said is the whole lot of us, hey, we do a lot of social services. We have an enormous amount of on-the-ground information about the people receiving welfare, about single moms what they're thinking about the dads, marriage, housing, incentives to have or not to have a child, work incentives. Let us share that with you. And we had a lot of interaction. So this does not have to be, it's not strictly a Republican Democrat thing. It's a timing thing. Religion is more on the outs now than it was in the 1990s when, you know, the ACLU and religious groups could together pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So it's a matter of timing, but it was also the case that there was lots of interaction with both Democrat and Republican administrations. The Obama administration, less so, and now the Biden administration, dramatically less so. Well, you just described that example from the 90s. Funny you mentioned that. Just a few days ago, I was at a gathering, a conference on, on policy. And I just sort of joked or half joked that maybe the best place for religion and government right now would be on the immigration issue, right? There's so much happening at the border and you have in, in the border communities and in Southern states, a lot of churches who might be open to assisting with the protection and, and of immigrants, social services and so on. They'd be well equipped to help roll those services out if they were just given support by the government. I joked that immigration could be the, the new faith-based initiative. And I was I was half joking, but not not only half joking. And and I guess it occurs to me as you as you offer those thoughts that this might be a natural place where the Biden administration could partner with religious groups 
to help in, in support of a policy that they already want to see move forward, right? Yeah. I mean, what, am I being naive there, or what do you think? No, I mean, frankly, if you went back and charted the amount of federal and religious group cooperation on immigration, it goes back a long time. It may well be, it's either the largest or in the top three type of grants that the feds give to religious bodies. You may remember there was tension during the Obama administration because the USCCB, the US Conference of Catholic Bishops, I think they have the largest assistance to immigrants and refugees in the United States from a private group. Okay. They handle the largest amount of refugees and immigrants. And they were being denied grants because they wouldn't refer for abortion. And they came out. I mean, the feds were, you know, they weren't hiding it. When they ranked quality of groups, they came out top or top two, but then they cut them out completely for a while. And I think that was reversed. They allowed them to sort of say to people, we don't do this, but the feds will. And here's how you call the feds and you can talk to them. But that cooperation has been going on a long time. I guess my deeper question is not whether they can cooperate on that, because who doesn't love a well-intentioned, efficiently budgeted group of loving, dedicated people handling a function that the government then doesn't have to handle themselves if they give you the grant. Who doesn't love that? I think the deeper question is whether they actually take any wisdom from what the churches know on the border or whether it's a matter of just efficient services. I think what you've got now is immigration is so politicized that when you see religion mentioned, it's more to support what the Biden administration is already deciding to do. Every time they come out with a statement regarding refugee caps, you can expect a statement a couple hours or a couple days later from a religious group. Whether those groups are being influential or whether that's being driven particularly by political considerations and Biden's political promises about immigration, that's a separate question. Now, as, as you know from over George Mason, one of my major obsessions is the administrative state. I run the, the program, the, the Gray Center over there, and you presented a paper a couple of years ago on religion in administration. And one of the recurring themes in this podcast, too, is, is my worry that the administrative state, administrative agencies are a uniquely bad forum for taking seriously religion and religious values in government. You think back to the Employment Division versus Smith case, where Scalia, writing for the majority, says, hey, these things in our constitutional system, they sort themselves out. We are an American people who take religion seriously. And of course, therefore, we will take religious liberty seriously in the context of legislation. And that seems the past really is a foreign country in that context, because today we're, we're administrative agencies, even more than in the late 80s, are the, the engine of policymaking. The dynamic is profoundly different from one administration to the next. And I'm very, very worried that administrative agencies can take religious values seriously. And maybe the proof is in the pudding in the, the conflict we've seen in the COVID era between, I mean, I guess there is primarily state executive offices and and religious believers in our churches. And we've seen the court in a couple of preliminary opinions try to wrestle through with this. But I'd be curious for for your take on this. Am I overstating this or maybe things were always this bad and this is just a different forum? How should we think about religion in administrative government? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I tend to agree with you. And here's some of the dynamics bearing on that. First is, I think religion was a more widely shared value that 
it was good for the country, that it made a citizenry that, oh, they volunteered, they gave money to charity, they took care of their kids, they wanted to be honest, they valued their community. These things that, yeah, they're nice American values, they're humanitarian values, but in the United States, they also drew a great deal from the strength of religion. So we moved from that time when you could have a nearly unanimous House and Senate plus President Clinton's signature on a bill to strongly protect religious freedom three years after the Smith opinion reduces that amount of protection. We've moved from that to that famous Civil Rights Commission report issued at the end of the Obama administration, where a remark is made in that report that religious freedom is nothing short of code for bigotry because it is really nowadays a code for transphobia, homophobia, Islamophobia, sexism, et cetera. I mean, wow, that was between 1993 and 2016. That is not a lot of history, right? In part because of, and I'm getting back to the administrative state thing, I'm I'm moving there, but in part because of a current national obsession with sexual expression as freedom and sexual expression as a political matter. And here, I cannot recommend more strong and strongly enough a new book by, by Carl Truman on modern identity. He was a reform theologian at Grove City College, but he's written this amazing history. I, I may even have it near me where I'm sitting, but I don't think I do. But it's a book that follows up on Charles Taylor's Sources of Modern Identity, but it specifically investigates it vis-a-vis the sexual revolution. This has become such an obsession, and the traditional faiths perceived as a problem for the forward progress on this, that this has colored our entire national conversation about religious freedom. And so now it has become a political matter. So now, whereas before Republicans and Democrats were very united on this in the 90s, now you have a Republican Party that has made religious freedom a huge issue. And you have a Democratic Party that is wanting to overturn the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or proposing a grand new version of civil rights, the Equality Act, basically says there is no religious freedom protection in this civil. I mean, it's it's a shocking sentence. It actually kind of gets to me physically when I read it. So because it's so political, now you have executives running on it at the federal and state level. and then agencies, many of which touch upon this new obsession with sexual expression. I mean, I feel so sorry for the churches who were basically going along with the American consensus. Now they're accused of being pelvic focused, when in fact, it's purely politically and interest group money driven, right? So now you have candidates running against religious freedom and for unlimited sexual expression laws. And this is influencing what agency? Labor. HHS, aid, USAID, it's housing, it's everywhere, education. (laughs) And they are making grants dependent on this. And you you find me a hospital or a major university that doesn't have some intersection with federal or state grants. So it has become a bit of a nightmare for religious institutions. It is quite political. So it is, you know, stroke of the pen, law of the land, you know, universe now. And you don't have, now I'm coming to the final point you introduced it with, you don't have Scalia's 
situation that he envisioned in the 1990 Smith case. Oh, gee, don't worry. Legislatures are cognizant of the value of religious freedom, and they'll be sure to provide an exemption in the law that judges are not going to be highly protective anymore. That is not the universe. That is like, wow, did that happen in the fifth century? No, it happened in the 90s. <laughs> I'll get back to the political context in, in just a moment, but here's a specific question that comes to mind. I'd be curious for your thoughts on this. In some of the most recent cases, the COVID cases, you see the justices trying to analogize religious gatherings to non-religious gatherings, right? Whether it's church service versus people filing into a casino in Las right. Vegas or church services versus people going shopping in California. And both the majority and the dissenting opinions are trying to say these things are similar, these things are dissimilar. And I, I frankly quite like the majority opinion in the, in the more recent cases. Let me take a step back, and I think what a strange conversation it is trying to say that this religious service is comparable to this commercial activity. It should be treated the same, or at least no worse than this commercial activity. And it just strikes me, and I can't remember who pointed this out to me, but it just strikes me there's something really strange about that entire conversation where, in some sense, it's impossible to really compare religious services for religious believers, at least, compare the, the, both the, the costs and the benefits, so to speak, of that activity versus the costs and benefits of just, I don't care how much you like gambling in Vegas or whatever, but these other commercial activities. And I guess what I'm going with this is it seems to me that at least in the judicial context, the way the doctrines exist and the way the lawyers argue, that in and of itself is a strange forum for religious values because it, it, it almost inherently forces even its own advocates to reshape religion into something that's a vocabulary that first the administrators and then the judges can grapple with. Oh, that is such a great can of worms. <laughs> because in one sense, I agree with you. On the other hand, religions are reaping what they sowed. So I agree with you. And you see some of that language in the New York and the California cases, the Cuomo and the Newsom, ca Newsom cases out of the Supreme Court since November, that defers to religion being somewhat sui generis. Oh my gosh, this is so fundamental. Religion is so fundamental. On the other hand, religions have tried to win free speech and religious freedom cases precisely by making reference to secular analogs. So, for instance, in the Rosenberger case regarding a religious magazine at UVA that deals with things from a religious perspective. The religious plaintiffs say, hey, free speech, talking about things from a religious perspective, talking about things, same things, not from a religious perspective. How about letting both of those happen? A case in which the focus on the family wants to discuss parenting at a public facility that rents, you know, that, that gives free rooms to people. Hey, we just want to talk about parenting. We happen to do it from a religious perspective. We want a level playing field with those who do it not from a religious perspective. And I could go on. You pay for public education. Gee, we're doing education. So on the one hand, religions are reaping what they sow because they had to ask for analogs. If you allow someone to grow their beard for medical reasons, you should allow them to grow their beard for religious reasons. On the other hand, and, and, and there's the risk, too, of this in another context of cases, which is the funding cases. You want a ton of federal funding or state funding for your schools? 
be prepared. The administrative state will hand it to you with 325 regulations associated with it. So I've always been a little wary of this. You know, I don't have a bunker mentality at all. I'm a firm believer in the the beautiful interplay of faith and reason as benefiting one another. However, you still have to retain, even in our sort of desiccated landscape for religion at the moment, well, desiccated may be too strong, but definitely declining awareness of, you know, what they, the, the transcendent on our cultural, political, literary, entertainment, et cetera, landscape. You never want to give up the conversation. The human person's relationship with the infinite as absolutely sui generis. And not just the, the individual, that would be way too American, but many religions understanding that we have to be in community to do religion. So freedom also for the institution. We can never give up the vision of their special status, even as we're asking for all kinds of freedom on the ground that we're analogous to a bunch of secular things. It's tricky. Let's talk a little more about politics then and, and religion in our political discourse. A few minutes ago, you just made reference to, probably get it wrong now, but I think you made reference to the Republican Party being much more favorable towards religion. Yes. I forget exactly how you put it. I mean, I guess it's good to have a party in our system that's that's focused on defending religious liberty. But in our polarized time, surely there's danger in religion becoming too closely associated with, with one political party. And where do you think of that situation stands right now for, for religion in our politics? I completely agree with you. You know, I worked in the pro-life movement. And when I started, there were 50 Democrats in the House and Senate who I could go to their office anytime and strategize. And then we saw Dan Lipinski, the last big pro-life member of the House, drummed out because the abortion advocacy groups came into his district and spent millions solely to throw him out on the issue of abortion. That's been problematic, right? Although right now, I think, you know, the advocacy group, the PAC, uh, Susan B. Anthony list, you know, has put dozens of women, but all Republicans. And that is a shame. First of all, it redounds back onto the argument, which isn't from principle, not from politics. And it seems to politicize the argument, which is nothing more than a human rights argument that human beings ought to have a right not to be killed, right? And it, it does obscure that when it becomes politicized. The same is, is happening with the religious freedom issue. Every once in a while, I would be at groups, nonpartisan, both parties, where I would have Democrat members of those groups saying, we have to learn to use religious language again, not to put off religious people from voting Democrat. <laughs> I wasn't hearing religion has an important role to play in informing who Americans are or what we value or what they have seen and know about human beings, human charity, immigration. I was seeing it as a, let's use the rhetoric as a means to an end. And they'll like some of our policies, so they're not going to get too upset if they don't have a seat at the table at the beginning, or they only have a seat at the table when we know they already agree. I do agree it's problematic, and particularly because the Republican Party has also organized against the excesses of sexual expressionism, Right. These things are becoming intertwined in people's minds. So they say, oh, they hate sex, they hate women, they're anti-LGBT, and it's all in the name of religion. 
Ooh, that's a really toxic conclusion. I mean, to be fair, the Democratic Party has now elected a president who's at least identifies himself as some kind of Catholic. He said in, the, in his memoir, he draws a distinction maybe between social teachings and, and other teachings. They have a, a United States senator who's a Baptist minister. And I mean, sometimes the, the greater dispute is, especially in the Catholic Church, is there are a lot of Catholic Democrats in elected office, Nancy Pelosi and others, whose positions on policy raise real questions about church teachings and so on, to say the least. So why is it the Democrats have managed to elect so many public Christians in particular without attracting the kind of criticism that Republicans, Christians and Republican political life seem to attract? Well, I, you know, I hate to be too simplistic about it, but part of it is if you are for abortion, for legal abortion, and you also profess a religious attachment, the press will love you, you know, entertainment industry will love you, the, ac the academic, you know, industry will love you. It's not about, they don't care whether you call yourself religious or not. It's do you agree with me on the bottom line issues, right? There's a ton of money, Emily's List, right? Early money is like he's just for abortion, right? For a while, they were like the, the biggest pack out there. Isn't that just fascinating? that that much money should should go to that issue. So I think as long as you're willing to defy your religion and be for legal abortion, they don't hold it against you that you're religious. They have another scalp, so to speak, to say, oh, no, no, religion really has different opinions on this. I'm not overstating it. And, you know, that the abortion issue has, it's fascinating and it and it merits, and I have thought about this a great deal, a great deal more sort of not just political commentary of how much it's driven Republican versus Democrat, the religious freedom issues. There's theological, there's epochal issues involved in why we have come to this question at this time as driving politics as hard as it did and, and driving the Kavanaugh hearing to the frenzy and the Barrett hearings to the frenzy that they reach. You cannot untie those from questions about the willingness to allow religious freedom. Well, Barrett's a great example. What do you think we've learned in recent years about American politics from the, the, the nomination and, and appointment of and criticism of, of that nomination? Of, of yeah. It's not about your religion. We're more about the continuum of where you stand on the economy, where you stand on the amount of government involvement. It's not, religion is not salient in the sense it might be in, you know, a long religious part of a country of Europe, Poland, Slovakia, Slovenia, Hungary, parts of Germany, especially Bavaria. Here, we're more like an economy with a culture loosely attached. <laughs> we're not so much a culture. So I think, again, we learned that, you know, it was really almost exclusively interest groups concerned about issues like same-sex unions and that drove the Kavanaugh and Barrett hearings to the frenzy that they achieved. The same was true of the Thomas hearing. I think we've learned that, you know, religion is a tool that is used politically at some of the highest levels, even as among the populace in the United States. Whatever the Pew, you know, surveys say about people's affiliation, to those for whom it matters, and it's still a dramatically large number of Americans, it matters a great deal. Interestingly, Adam, the surveys done on salience or intensity 
of attachment to religion, they've actually gone up. Today, the people who profess themselves affiliated or religious, according to the Pew surveys, are far more likely to have a more intense commitment. Whereas, you know, when you had legions of people flocking to, you know, mega churches and, you know, those sorts of phenomena that we saw more in the 60s, 70s, 80s, it's possible that the affiliation was a little less intense. Now, if you really are going to be religious, you've made a very distinct choice not to go along with the tide, but in the teeth of it. What's the right way for those, all the more religious people in, in modern America to express themselves in politics or to contribute to political discourse? <laughs> right? There's always something challenging for somebody who's, who's, for whom religion is, a, is sort of a dominant driver of their life to convey their arguments to people who don't share those religious values. Yeah. What's the right way to do that? So there's a couple of things to say here. One, you know, America is still more of a Protestant country than a Catholic one in the sense of its heritage and what drives the religious conversation. And in, you know, evangelical and fundamentalist Protestant discourse, and even in what used to be more influential mainline Protestant discourse, the role of reason was not as stressed as it is in Catholic theological discourse. So it was more understood that religion was important because it made individuals virtuous. And those made virtuous families, virtuous communities, and that that was what was good for the country. Along comes Catholic theology and says more robustly, this is not utterly denied in Protestant theological tradition. It simply wasn't emphasized as much, or in some cases it was denied, right? It's all about fideism. It's, it's faith only. Reason does not enter it. God is not interested in your feeble human attempts to be good. But along comes Catholicism and says, listen, our teaching is an interplay of natural law, things we think that people can know and understand as good and right, of reading anthropological truths, truths about the human person from experience, from science, empirics. Gee, you know, you look at people, they're too sexed. Equality beside diversity is a real thing. We are made for each other, man and woman, huh? People are intrinsically relational. Hmm, look at how babies are made and born. God could have done it otherwise, where we're for and from all our lives. We're for and from. So, wow, all of these things are telling about people. Then we say, listen, so our beliefs are something we could go to a legislative hearing and tell you about. Additionally, we have the largest charitable efforts on the ground. We interact with vulnerable people. We interact with immigrants, refugees, the desperately poor, the alcoholic, the recently freed convict, etc. We know a lot about human nature. And what we know, even first from Revelation, ends up, if you actually think about it and go explore the facts on the ground, being quite wise about who people are and how society operates. So therefore, you ought to take our advice. When we tell you there's something magical about conception, we don't discount science. We're complimenting it. And we're also sort of adding the wow factor. Look at that. <laughs> you don't know how to do that. You did not make gametes or embryos. Someone else did. It's only reasonable to think that there is something greater than us. You're being irrational and narrow-minded to close that off. So. With all of this, what I'm saying is one of religion's functions is to say, we reason philosophically, we look at science, 
we have not limited our reason, but expanded it by acknowledging, like Einstein and the others, that there's probably some greater mind that's trying to tell us stuff, and we're open to listening. And then to seeing how this accounts for the situation on the ground, or can maybe even help explain how we improve that situation. I think we have to be bold on that. One of the greatest authors on this is a guy named Frank Beckwith. He was Catholic, then he was Baptist, now he's Catholic again. I'm having him to a conference next spring at Scalia Law, in fact. He talks about being very bold about saying, there's things we know and we've seen, and we want to bring these to the table. Whether we're talking welfare reform, how to handle distressed women in crisis pregnancies, what a refugee or an immigrant really wants and needs, what to do about poverty. I think we have to be very bold about our ability to speak as religious people with wisdom and not say we're shunted off onto mysterious things from scripture that none of you can understand. You can understand taking care of the, the, the nearest neighbor, Good Samaritan style, as a virtue. And we can tell you more about that. So I would be pretty bold about what faith can do in political, legislative, you know, the daily course of their work. You know, another kind of conversation that happens in politics is the conversation that surrounds those collisions between religious liberty and the work of government. As we see so often, especially in recent years with big new legislative or regulatory programs, oftentimes religious liberty arguments, they either sort of lead the parade of arguments against a new government program, or you might even call them the tip of the sphere, right? Obamacare is a classic example. We had originally arguments about the federalism and, and all of that, but very quickly, a lot of our arguments about Obamacare were about religious liberty, right? right. And we saw that in, in arguments now about anti-discrimination laws at the state level, and probably soon, once again, at the federal level, where religious liberty, because it's right there so explicit in the First Amendment, is naturally one of the first arguments that's going to present itself against social regulation, social legislation. Right. And so that's inevitable, but it worries me, I think, sometimes that when you have a new government program that places a wide variety of burdens on the American public, not all of them having to do with religion, there's a danger that the, the salience of religious liberty arguments are going to be taken by the other side as actually just cover for resist uh, the government in general. That's sort of an inchoate thought, but it, as a religious person, it does worry me that religion and religious liberty are often sort of front in line of the challenges to a big new government program, because I, I, I think that in some ways, the left or Democrats' skepticism of religious liberty is because they, they look and say, well, actually, you're just fighting this war on behalf of people who don't like Obamacare. Right. Or you're just fighting this war on behalf of people who don't like anti-discrimination laws. So um, make me feel better about that. How should I think about yeah, that? Yeah, make you feel better. Well, there are religious traditions that are known for having greater skepticism about large government programs. You know, this would have been sort of the legacy of the moral murity, you know, back from the, the 80s and the 90s. And there were some specific pastors and other religious leaders who spoke out in favor of Trump's deregulating efforts, right? On the other hand, the Catholic Church was pretty well known to be in favor of healthcare reform right? What, what's now called Obamacare. 
was ready to sign off on this massive, right, new, new program. What percentage of the economy? I can't remember, but quite massive. But had this objection on the contraception mandate, on abortion funding, on the transgender surgery mandate in Section 1557, by the way, which the Trump administration has, the Catholic health had won that at the lower court and the, the Trump administration stopped fighting it. And now the Biden administration is back suing these sisters of Mary to force them to do transgender surgeries in their, their hospitals. So, but anyway, so it's not true of a very large religious voice who's sort of well known for liking government programs, right? At least at the USCCB level, this is not sure that this translates to every Catholic in the pew, but, but at the level of the lobbyists at the USCCB, they like this program. But These nuances, Adam, are not covered in the press. You're not going to see people would love this program if only it didn't jam abortion funding, contraception funding, transgender surgeries down their throats. There's the press has no interest in making that statement. And the press that would be inclined, the conservative press, to say, we're so glad they're fighting for religious freedom is not happy with their support for the large government program. There is not an outlet to cover this sort of thing fairly. Now, back in the 1990s, I was working for the U.S. bishops and was traipsing around the country speaking about what was going to be an abortion mandate in Clinton care, right? This was uh, in the early 90s, 91, 92. And I remember the New York Times, I was there, I remember hating it because I was uh, pregnant and looked very tired in this picture. <laughs> And traipsing around the country. And the New York Times at the time, Gwen Eiffel, you remember, went to PBS and then has, has passed away. She wrote a very fair article saying, hey, this is so interesting. One of the biggest supporters of healthcare for all is also really upset and just wants them to take abortion out of it. And then it would be cool. <laughs> and, you know, that's a real position. You just don't see that coverage as much anymore of this sort of the, the nuanced coverage. Again, This is why I can't recommend this Carl Truman book enough. His discussion of how sexual expression sort of just became permeated through laws on labor and aid and charity and employment and housing and health care, it has really created a rift that doesn't have to be there. There could be far more fruitful conversations between religions that do this enormous amount of charity and other good, you know, good works and education, if they didn't start by saying, first, you have to violate 2000 years worth of your teaching on sex, marriage and parenting. And if you're not going to do that, you're our enemy. It is shutting down fruitful conversations. Speaking of fruitful conversations, we only have a few moments left in ours. And the last subject I wanted to turn to was education. And before I get to the big picture question about religion, religious values, and the formation of citizens in education. Just curious, how do you approach your work as an educator? You're a very public Christian, public Catholic, active in your church at the highest levels in in the country. You teach at a public university, a state university. We're not Notre Dame. (laughs) And and so I'm curious, how does your religion inform your work as a teacher at 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 a state university? So the very first thing it does is, it's part of my religious belief, is that you can come to know God in the only way that humans can come to know anything, which is encountering other human beings. And I find that my students of every kind of religion and no religion are just an extreme experience of of love and grace for me. 
you know, when I teach the law and religion seminar, I could look around the room and say, okay, Sikh, Orthodox, Muslim, Jewish, Orthodox, Jewish, Baptist, Evangelical, Catholic, Atheist, Atheist. That is a typical roundtable for me. And the first impact on me is that it tells me about the beauty of the human person and the gifts they have to give. And through my students, I would say, and this is not a throwaway line, it's really true with me, I encounter something beautiful and divine. And I, I like the fact, this is part of why I'm at a public university, uh, I like understanding that the world is full of goodness and is at my doorstep. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I do find that students know, you know, who all their professors are, that, you know, I don't bring theology into the classroom at all, but I know a lot of different theologies, right? Catholic, Protestant, some Muslim, some, some Judaism. And it allows me to have really fruitful discussions when we get into cases in the First Amendment class about it. Then it allows me to ask students questions. I say, well, listen, we're doing a family law case, and this man is about a Jewish couple, and he wouldn't give his wife a get in order to allow her to get a divorce. Anybody here want to talk about that from their background? Religion is salient in the lives of a large percentage of Americans. And that's true among the students at this public university. I don't bring it to them but I know it's salient. I allow them to reflect on their own experience so that it's realistically part of the landscape, which it is in public, right? So I would guess that that is some of the leading ways in which I use it. And then I write a lot and I have students who are interested in it and are my RAs. My RAs now are, I think I have a Catholic, an Evangelical and a Muslim as my three RAs. (laughs) And they want to do law and religion with me and they want to explore their own traditions, and I learn from them. So it's fruitful in many different ways. Fascinating. One last question, and it gets back to a conversation that I was having in some of the previous episodes about free speech on campus. We had, as I mentioned, Nikki Neely of Speech First and Stuart Taylor of Princetonians Free Speech on the show. I'm a big believer in campus free speech. I until recently served on the board of Speech First, and, and I really believe in its mission. I, I think that we're at a very dangerous time right now in the state of our discourse at our universities. At the same time, I do recognize that there's more to education than just free speech. I think back to Bill Buckley's book, God and Man at Yale, where he was really pushing back against academic freedom. It was right there in the subtitle, a criticism of, of academic freedom. And I have some measure of sympathy for that in the sense that Education needs to form its students, not just intellectually, but as but to be citizens in a country that really presumes and depends on certain constitutional virtues, not religious virtues, right, but but certain Republican virtues that are necessary for a free and self-governing people. And so I think while I think free speech on campus is maybe more important than ever, I think we need to be careful about making it the end all be all of everything. And so as a, as a Catholic educator at a state university who's a fierce believer in the American project, what's the right role for state universities to actually shape the character of their students? Well, we're ending here with an easy question. Yeah, thank you. So I am a big believer not in sort of a voluntaristic or nominalistic understanding of free speech, but it's speech for some good. I don't think you can gainsay 
your evaluation that, you know, we're in some serious trouble here when their job over an opinion that is just presently out of favor with the powers that be. That's very scary, especially when we're talking about, you know, a highly informed opinion, empirical studies that journals are refusing to publish. So I think that universities on the one hand have to believe in some objective good. You know, I'm thinking, for instance, of something like female genital mutilation, mutilating the human body. We need not just to get onto that bandwagon because it's a popular feminist thing now. There's objective evaluation that you're destroying the human body in that case, even though a culture will say, no, we absolutely need to have it. No, the state gets to draw some lines. So I, I don't want no standards. And I think this is what you're referring to by fearing, you know, pure, you know, unmitigated freedom. I would like to have to justify, and this is what I, where I love the empirical bent of Scalia law. You've got to say that what you, the free speech, if it is, if it is harming, and I don't mean just mere, I take offense. I can't look at a cross on public land because it makes me ill, right? If you're really harming people, not in some way, gee, that is problematic, but it can't be mere offense. And I also think this isn't just a question of, you know, speech that's, that's good and promotes the human good. There's also some stuff that's just sort of pointless and a waste of money. <laughs> like sort of, why are we indulging that kind of research? It's not because we don't care about academic freedom. It's just because we'd like you to do something a little bit more worthwhile. And we're all so afraid to talk about objective reality or the idea of any norms at all. But there are some. And it doesn't consist in whether you offend me by having a different opinion, but it does have to revolve around whether you really are injuring human beings or human communities. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here in this conversation. Helen, you cover so much ground in all of your teaching and writing. I'm so glad you're able to join us today for this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. And thanks to our audience, as always, for joining us. Please tune in for the next episode on Precedential. <laughs>